0: a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, saved the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today how to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite, we want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients, and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things. To be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. In this episode, Alberto Glori and I explore how the use of drones and AI technology could impact positively in shaping healthcare in underdeveloped countries.
1: The challenge has been to maintain some kind of support mechanism for people. That's the first thing, uh, professional support mechanisms for doctors actually working. And I think that's been a challenge, mainly for the people in the front line, rather than the people who were in the specialties that didn't get mobilized, didn't get redeployed, and have just had to deal with an element of the previous workload. So I've seen it example. But the support mechanism for the people who were working flat out was inadequate. To us. And we know that. And we've tried to rectify that. It's still been a difficult to ask. And on top of that, everybody just abandoned all the things that were deemed absolutely imperative a few weeks before accreditation, appraisal, quality control, audit. It's all gone by the wayside. And it may be that what we've learned from all of this is that it's a lot of wasted time and effort for really no benefit. And it may well be that part of the look-back to try and address some of the issues we're talking about in terms of lack of resource may be that we can't afford to spend a amount of time and money to do appraisal or re-validation in the way it's been done. It could be perhaps done in a lighter-touch way the majority of people, because the GMC was able to change everything in the top of a hat, and it wasn't evidence based; it was needs based. Education has basically taken a back seat the past two three months, uh, and there's no doubt about that. Using other technologies such as webinars, Zoom, internet uh, hosted uh, meetings has been interesting. And it's actually quite effective. So, I mean, I've done some webinars with people simultaneously in Australia, South Africa, Europe. And, you know, it saves me traveling. And the discussion was actually a very high quality discussion. The teaching was as effective as wanted to be. It was obviously lacking a personal close touch, but pretty good. It's saving a huge amount of Carbon emissions, very good in saving, uh, being away for a long period of time. Home, it's limited. The education you can do is limited, and that's one of the one of the problems that we have to face. A challenge of how do we bring hands-on? So, surgeons need hands-on education as well. How do we bring hands-on education out to outreach, so to speak? So we have ideas that there is technology, haptic feedback technology, simulators that exist already for some tasks could do more. But, you know, a lot of industries have been working with happy feedback, high end simulators, and working out ways of making them affordable either by moving them around the country or having small enough units that they are affordable. Uh, so the phosphorus simulators are very, very good now and uh, well better to the ones that we were working with thirty five years ago. So Technology can help it. And this change of mind, this attitude that we said, you know, we don't need to have appraisal, we don't need to have this because this is a crisis. We're not going to suddenly see another 10 shipments coming in. We won't see that problem at all. And secondarily, looking at the students, they've lost a huge amount of clinical teaching and they're going to lose a lot more clinical teaching because distancing groups, you know, how are you going to have the, the grand ward round with the five or six medical students doing a ward round, post take ward round? And that's all changed. And yet that's a place where we disseminate much knowledge. Can we do virtual ward rounds? Well, we can. So some of our work in Africa, we do a visit to a hospital, and we might only visit that hospital for three to five days once a year. And we do surgeries that we can't follow up personally. So what we use is we use WhatsApp, and at six weeks we will see the patients, if we particularly want to see a patient, or the patients may all come back and have a clinic, and then the local clinician may say, well, these ones need to stay in and then we have a WhatsApp clinic. And we've done that very, very effectively. You can see good pictures of what's happening, you can examine virtually, You can get up to the eight x-rays and then just beam those across uh, to us, And that's worked incredibly well. Absolutely. It's been fascinating how good it is. And it gives you the ability to actually continue the education process of the clinicians that you've built. For the medical school, my experience so far has been that that's been a challenge because the medical schools have not been used to delivering this teaching. And they've not been used to doing exams online either. So some of the stuff that I've been involved in, they didn't have banks of questions that were suitable for online usage because they were used to doing OSCEs. They didn't have a methodology for making the questions standardized. Now, those of us who've been examiners for MRCS, and the FRCS, the conjoint exams, we know that all the questions and the exams are all standardised and you know, the double negatives are basically banned and it has to be plain English and it has to ask one question and it can't be a misleading question and we know that it standardise and stratify the difficulties of these questions to help us define who are the good students, who are the mediocre students and who are the failed students. But a lot of the medical schools, medical schools haven't been able to do this. They've never done it before. So they've had to learn very, very quickly. And that's been a challenge for them. And Certainly, looking at some of the exams that have been done online, it's a bit like you're trying the dots, all this stuff. I mean, it's been quite fascinating. The very basic errors in educational theory and examination theory, which you know, you'd think educators would know, but how would they know if they've never done it before? and certainly one of uh, my colleagues I think you know, Ali Mehdi, has been looking at how to provide this education especially for countries that are going to be really challenged by all this because you know, some countries are going to find this a massive challenge because they rely on international students who can't travel just now. So the RCSI in Dublin has a significant majority of their students are from overseas and a lot of them are coming in that are going to have a prolonged lockdown methodology in terms of travelling, quarantining, and yet these students are supposed to be coming back in the early September for the next term. How are they going to do that? And the, the colleges, the Edinburgh College, is validating so the educational platforms to bring them online, and we have to think of ways of doing that, and we have to think of ways of providing the teaching and assessment online and minimising the contact that there has to be. And at the same time, it's taking an opportunity to standardise. that. interesting thing that Ali is looking at with the college, is standardising the standard of the exam. Yeah. Because the questions will be standardised, people understand what the difficulties are, how the exam questions should be set, the quality, some of the images used for an anatomy test that I was looking at were just shocking. You can hardly see what was going on in rotten flesh, in you know, poor dried out specimens, and no colouring, all one just deep shade of brown, and in two dimensions. So you can't use the three-dimensional aspect that we were used to when looking at a specimen and saying, well actually that's anterior to uh, it's a long string structure and it's definitely separate. You can't see that in a poor 2D rendition. So that's all going to change. And once it's changed, I think it's going to be difficult to go back yeah. because standardization of exams has always been, the well, World Federation of Medical Schools has always said, you know, this is a standard of care provision of education we aspire to. It. The WHO has been trying to encourage that for many, many years. It's just so variable. And the same with education for doctors. The concept of travelling, you know, three, four hours in a plane, maybe two or three hours in a train to get to the plane, then a bus or a taxi at the other end for a two-day course to learn how to use a new technique may no longer be tenable. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, they were very expensive to start with, and the hit rate wasn't particularly high. So some of the courses I teach in, we might have 25, 30 attendees who are surgeons who expressed an interest in the technology. We will ship them to Germany or London or wherever from all over the world to do a course for two days. So they might take two days to get there, two days to get home, two days of course. And then of those attendees, we might only have two or three of the 25 we take up the technology and we're looking and in fact in three weeks time and in seven weeks time we're actually running some of these courses we are looking at investing the practical element of education element so the educational element will be an online block of reading some of the background material answering a set of questions then having the tutorials which would normally have run into the two days being done in the morning because I got the background knowledge and then doing some demonstrations which would be televised with high quality 3D TV you could use virtual uh, Google Glasses for example and VR and then at the end of that the people that want to go further and actually want to seriously undertake that technology and put it into the operating theatre we essentially turn everything on its head. So the educator goes to the surgeon and works with the surgeon in their hospital to educate them to do this technology. So they might not do one case, they might do six cases back-to-back over two days with perhaps a saw bone the night before they start the actual cases. And again, the virtual reality concept for surgery and cadaveric work, Something that you know, you're talking about operating in Mars. We're getting more and more appropriate feedback systems, tactile feedback systems, and haptic systems that will allow us to do this. And some of the models as well that you know, cadaveric models have moved on fantastically. You get a field cadaver; it's an absolutely amazing educational tool. I call them splitting image puppets. That are coming through are absolutely amazing. In terms of quality and their cost is relatively low as well in comparison to the tablet. so all of these things are coming and the cats are at the bank so we're going to do it and the companies have realized that they can save money and focus their efforts more effectively and that's really valuable
0: yes so that's the bit that i was just you know pondering during the lockdown but is this the opportunity for um industry for technology to really get into healthcare, where previously there's been so many barriers to it, that now we're in that fourth industrial revolution, AI and everything is already here, and it's everywhere else. You know, you can. You I'm not with been on I know about that. healthcare, mean, and you've always been one of those surgeons that's an early adopter, innovative, and and a lot of the you know computer assisted surgery that you do. But looking at that with the humanitarian work that you're doing now is. Do you think the industry has finally come on board to realise that this is their moment in time to shine? I don't think it's about shining. I think it's a practical reality. So A,
1: I think they'll save money with an investment. You know, and whether we like it or not, we're all being dragged kicking and screaming into 21st century technology. And you know, I always give the example of at the moment, in much of our orthopaedic practice. We are using an Alexander Graham Bell telephone, everybody around us is using a smartphone. Why have we not adopted the technology that allows us to be better? Part of it are we typically male-dominated specialty we're very, very mature. We know we're right all the time, and we're, you know if it doesn't work, just hammer it a bit harder, push it a bit harder. You know manuals are for dummies. You know. There's been a natural behavior for many, many years, and that has to change. But I think the expectation of the public now is the technology has to come. We want it to to come to make our lives better and safer. And I think once the younger generation of surgeons who are already tech savvy, they're getting it. They realize that all this technology can be used to help provide better care, safer care, and better education. And they get it. And uh, the dinosaurs are going to be retired anyway. And they're not going to cope with it. So yeah, I think industry will Im- embrace that. And part of it is the cost of technology has got so much less. So you know, back in the eighties, to run a very basic and uh, possibly simulating program, we were using two Sun workstations at some crazy amount of. I think it was four hundred thousand pounds, and uh, the cooling capacity of it was just. Crazy, and now you know smartphones got the same, (laughs) the same computing power. So the cost of the technology has proportionally dropped a lot. Yes, there's more technology available: the haptic feedback, the VR, and the real-time modeling. All of that, I think, is cheaper. I know it's cheaper, but it's just a matter of people realizing it can make us save money. greener in certain ways as well, which is an argument that must be had. And it's interesting, the green discussion hasn't really been had yet about the whole COVID thing. The amount of plastic and non recyclable uh, rubbish that we're creating is a nightmare. And yet we're talking about reducing your plastic use uh, talk about it no one in the right mind is going to allow you to recycle COVID contaminated plastic. Yeah. But the answer has to be, why not? Yeah. Because we know it dies after 72 hours. So there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And uh, talking to a pilot, actually, who's involved in uh, landfill, uh, destruction of metal waste, he was telling me that the amount of medical that is happening, that's being disposed of, has just shot through the roof. So, and that's without elective surgery going, <laughs> going
0: on. <laughs> it's truly really terrifying. So you said earlier, earlier that technology can help us. Do you think it will replace us? Eventually, yes.
1: I think eventually it's going to take over a lot of what we do. To um, give you the example of pilots so, and drivers. So, driverless vehicles are on the streets now in California, Google vehicles, and they're working and they're relatively safe. Uh, there have been some high profile disasters with some of the Teslas um, and the autopilot systems. Various countries are looking at autonomous pilotless drones to use as taxis, uh, air taxis. Ironically, I was, when I was in uh, Malawi, there's a company that is using drones, self-directed drones, to deliver medical supplies to inaccessible places. And they have a payload of six kilos, an autonomy of 100 kilometres so is reasonable, and it allows people to deliver medical supplies, drugs, blood, and samples from Kata Bay Hospital to Lacombe Island, which beforehand had a ferry twice a week and the ferry took six hours, and it often didn't run. So now you can literally send blood that's needed for an operation whilst the operation is happening. Wow. And that technology, people would have thought 20 years ago was impossible. The helicopter technology, the pilotless uh, air taxis are already being adopted in various countries. Uh, Dubai is planning to have that as its basic uh, taxi system. Does it not do this in the future and they're enabling it. And a lot of industries, lot of governments, have enabled this technology. And even in the UK, you know, under the radar, nobody's been aware, after all the bad press for drones, that drones are being used in the UK today for doing medical tasks, medical deliveries, as an extension uh, of CEA dispensations, but, and they're pretty successful. And the AI, well, the AI is pretty far ahead already. Would it replace surgeons this week? No. Would it replace doctors making decisions? Not for a while, but it'll help us. It'll help us. Some of the AI stuff that I looked at, again, it's a completely different project. It's interesting because what it does is it puts together the possibilities of diagnosis in terms of uh, the diagnostic meeting with the patient. And the very little information, it's not very good, but the more information it has, the more it hones into possibilities. And what's interesting is it categorizes the probability of diagnosis. But what's even more interesting is it brings up rare things and the low probability, but it makes you think about them, whereas we wouldn't have thought about that. And we've all had patients who've had rare conditions that we missed. Yeah. So those patients are going to be better served. Another thing that's interesting is it can rationalize investigation because if on a symptom database you know that it's got a 90% chance that it's such and such, you can actually do that test and that test alone as opposed to a battery of tests which costs a lot of money. So I think there's a a lot of possibilities for us. Going on to surgery, the robotic side of things, we know is still not there, we can do robotics on hard structures but at the end of the day we still need haptic feedback. So all the systems we're using, the da Vinci systems, uh, the Negro systems, so different possibilities in terms of general surgery, vascular surgery, of Neurosurgery, all of them require haptic feedback and oversight and that's a big problem. Because that's a big jump to have no surgeon providing that oversight. And we can do it tactically, we can do it at a distance, but I still think it needs to be a surgeon so far to see the foreseeable future. But in the long term, we can teach haptic feedback to user AI to teach haptic feedback to a robotic system. Because all it is is an algorithm and a learning process. So it'll come, but I still think there'll be oversight. And then, just like we started the arthroscopy all those years ago, we still had to know how to do an open arthroscopy, an open meniscectomy at the beginning, because the technology wasn't reliable. But now, 35 years later, nobody knows how to do an open meniscectomy. They're struggling. Because the technology has become so reliable. Yeah. And that'll happen with the AI as well. I wouldn't bet on the timeframes because... There's always a the confounder. Again, some of the technology that's coming in terms of tissue engineering, bioengineering, yeah, you know, we can 3D print tissues now. And there are companies out there that are looking at how to 3D print complex tissues, livers, kidneys, bone. And what they're producing is pretty impressive. And we then know that we can anastomose, vessels using a robotic system much more accurately than the average surgeon can. But it's not just about accuracy, it's about repeatability. They don't fatigue. So the numbers of surgeries that can be done could technically be much greater. But obviously there's a huge investment in the technology. And that cost, that technology will become cheaper, but it's still going to be expensive. You know, robots when they came out for roughly weeks were one and a half million bucks. And, you know, that did one operation. It's a one-trick pony. And we have a multi-capable, semi-active robot with feedback and all the rest of it. You mentioned localization, and it's, you know, $150,000. And it's small. You can carry it from one theater to another. So the technology is coming, and it's getting cheaper. The time frame is, you know, the laggards are still there.
0: So how's Africa faring with COVID?
1: So... That's an interesting conundrum. It seems to be feeling better than everybody thought. Mm. And we don't know why. So the expectation was it would be a grim reaper because people have little access to sanitation, running water, the ability to wash. Uh, there's regular loss of basic supplies such as soap, towels, gloves, face masks, surgical gowns. Uh, let alone, you know, plastic gowns and all that sort. And people live on top of each other. You know, social distance is impossible. People live in small, very, very poor accommodation in large family groups, extended family groups. A large number of the population will have malaria, will be really compromised. 10 to 50% of some countries are HIV positive, but they're often usually to have antiretrovirals. Others will have TB. Schistosomiasis, glimming of compromise, malaria. Yeah. And then there's been a malnutrition <laughs> epidemic as well because of the failures of some of the crops in the Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the after of Cyclone has done a lot of damage in terms of crops in Southeast know, Africa. And the expectation was that it just race through and destroy a huge amount of people. What's interesting, that hasn't happened. South Africa's got the biggest number, but Zambia, the numbers just aren't anywhere near that. In malawi are the same. Is it because we're not testing? Well, you still then see the respiratory problems and the failures, the organ failures. And the doctors and the hospitals and the clinical officers are just not seeing these patients. So these ill patients we expect with COVID are just not coming. Now, is it because it's a milder disease in Africa for whatever reason? Is the theory that it's to do with a uh, Exposure to sunlight and vitamin D is actually part of the, the background that's protected because there's lots of sunshine and vitamin D is synthesized in black skin very effectively with a high level of sunshine. Could it be the antiretrovirals that are being extensively used for HIV are actually having essentially a herd immunity type effect? We don't know. We just don't know. One of the problems in middle-income countries is doing research because it's so difficult to contact trace, it's difficult to get the test done. Mm-hmm. There's no money for the test, there's no PPE equipment. Then there's the politics of the country as well. I mean, in some countries, uh, the lockdown was imposed and then the courts reversed it. Then the political parties heading towards an election that are ignoring all the lockdown, so mm-hmm. there's no social distancing. And other countries, the money generated by... ADHD, WHO, etc., has been used to buy armoured cars to protect police from contamination. And you're thinking, okay, how does that work? So there's a lot of issues that seem to be clouding our understanding. But one thing I can tell you, speaking to the people in the ground, is they're not seeing these huge numbers of COVID failures, respiratory failures, multi arm failures, or embolic phenomena. They're just not seeing them.
0: Yeah, paradox in Western countries, it's the black and Asian ethnic minorities that seem to be getting hit the hardest. Yes,
1: who would normally be the ones that suffer most in Western countries from the lack of vitamin D and sunshine. So you know, there is a rationale for thinking this. But yeah. yeah but again, you know, social deprivation indexes, indices are much higher in the black, Asian minority groups, and that's part of the problem that's might be a confounder, whereas in Africa, you know, just about everybody is poor and has these problems. So it's much more even in terms of numbers of the population. It remains to be seen. I mean, one comment from the Minister of Health in South Africa was, actually, it's just at the very beginning in Africa. We're back at the January, February, maybe even November, December. And it's just that now, because we're aware of it, We're measuring, and we're identifying, and the numbers are still those low numbers because it's not spread and because it hasn't had a chance to spread. But we don't know. We just don't
0: know. So what's next in the next three to six months then for you? You can listen to the next episode with Alberto Pavori right now. You don't need to wait until next week. Simply download from Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify. career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope and most importantly an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies, and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more, or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch.